We are this morning continuing to look at the story of God's grace to and through the prophet Jonah. If you have your Bible with you, turn over to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3, first few verses there. We talked last week about Jonah's prayers from the sea and from the fish. His reflection on the greatness and the mercy of God to him. That salvation belongs to the Lord to be distributed where and when the Lord chooses. Period. The Lord had called him away from the comfort of his home to go to a place that he hated. Full of people that he hated and preach against it. At which point Jonah discovered that his national pride was more important to him than his worship of the Lord. And so he fled, giving up everything to avoid the one thing he could not bear the thought of. The grace of God may be being applied to the hated Assyrians. But the Lord interfered with his plan bringing Jonah to the point of repentance in the belly of the fish and finally back to the land he had just left. This morning, we begin again. If you're able, please stand while I read from Jonah 3 and then remain standing, excuse me, stand with me while I pray and then remain standing while I read from Jonah 3. We'll get it right in a second. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to your word because in it we find life. And only in it do we find life. And yet, Father, Son, and Spirit, if you do not restrain our hearts, restrain our sin, restrain our broken reasoning, we will find anything but your truth in this, your word. And so, Lord, we pray that you would send your Spirit. Pour yourself out on us this morning that our sin would be restrained, that our eyes would be opened, that we would worship you with whole hearts and whole minds and go, come away encouraged and built up in our faith, that we might come away worshiping you with whole hearts. Let your name be praised alone in the reading and the preaching of this, your holy word. We pray it in that very name. Amen. As I said, I'm reading from Jonah chapter 3. I'm going to read the first four verses. I'm actually going to pick up with the last verse of chapter 2 just to give us some context. This is God's word. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going across a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. In one of my favorite movies from my childhood, The Princess Bride, Inigo Montoya is on a quest to find the man who killed his father. But along the way, he gets a little sidetracked, doesn't he? He gets pulled away from his true purpose. He hires on with Vicini, who is leading a smallish mercenary company, which is engaged to foment a war on behalf of Prince Humperdinck. The names are great, aren't they? But when the man in black 
foils their plans and separates Inigo Montoya from the group, rather than returning to his main quest, seeking out the man who killed his father, he returns to where he was when Vicini found him, drunk in a bar, refusing to be moved and yelling at the world, I am waiting for you, Vicini. You told me to go back to the beginning. This is where you found me, so this is the beginning. In our passage this morning, we've gone back to the beginning. Sort of. Back in the first chapter, you'll remember God called Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Of course, Jonah fled. Now, he's a little bit older, a little bit more smelling of fish, and a good bit more chastened fair bit more humble, hopefully at least, more willing to obey the Lord's command. But before we rush past verses 1 and 2, we need to recognize something about them that is very easy for us to miss. They are virtually word for word identical with the beginning of chapter 1. Easy to miss, right? On the one hand, Everyone pretty much recognizes that the Lord issues the same call again to the wandering prophet. What we miss is that this repetition in and of itself is grace to Jonah. God called him the first time and Jonah didn't just say, no, 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 I, I ain't doing that. Nope, not going. I'm just going to stay here. No. No, instead, he beat feet, running as far as he could to get away. As far from the people of God and the worship of God as it was possible to go. And God disciplined him, brought him back, having taught Jonah something about God's sovereign power. But there's no guarantee that God will continue to use Jonah to preach the gospel, to preach his word, to serve as his prophet. After all, he is not exactly, Jonah has not exactly covered himself in glory this last chapter or two. God would have been fully justified had he merely restored Jonah to Israel and then left him there in obscurity, never to be heard from again. In fact, if he had done so, he would still have been considered gracious to Jonah because what Jonah deserved was to go to the bottom of the sea and have that be the end of the story. That's what Jonah deserved. If the story had stopped at 1.16 before the first mention of the great fish, it would still be a mighty demonstration of the power of God bringing grace and mercy on pagan sailors through the disobedience of one of his children, one of the children of Israel. But God, being rich in mercy, redeemed Israel or redeemed Jonah from the deeps, brought him to the point of repentance and recognition that salvation belongs to the Lord. If the story had ended there with Jonah restored to life as it were, left on dry land after being transported back by the fish, that even more would be a demonstration of God's mercy and his grace, restoring the wandering son of Israel to the ancestral promises, land and people and the corporate worship of the true God. He deserved death. That would have been just. Instead, not only did he not die, he was not rejected. He was given back his place amongst the people of God. God's grace abounds to sinful people. 
But the story doesn't stop there either. Because God's plan of redemption is not simply to get us back to where we started. Our hope in the gospel is not a return to Eden. Not a return to moral neutrality from which we then have to obey perfectly to be accepted. Our hope in the gospel is to be made better than we were before. To be made actually righteous, not just capable of being righteous. In Christ, our hope is not simply to go back to the way things were, to be made greater, more glorious than they had ever been before. Now, there is, of course, a sense in which we are restored in Christ to our former position. We are restored to holiness. We are restored to a right relationship with the Lord. And we rejoice in that. But God doesn't erase the reality of all that has happened or even erase our memory of it. Instead, he transforms it so that the memory of our sin, the memory of our rebellion is put in the context of God's glorious redemption so that he is all the more praised because of it. For Jonah, he would remember his rebellion and his flight, but he would also see the truth that the Lord brought salvation to a group of pagan sailors who might otherwise never have encountered the God of Israel, who might never have seen the true God in a way that would lead them to belief. But because Jonah rebelled, those sailors saw the hand of God and worshipped him. Now, before you hear what I'm not saying, the fact that God uses Jonah's rebellion does not make Jonah's rebellion a good thing. I hope that's obvious to you. The fact that God uses Jonah's rebellion to glorify himself and to enact good in the world does not make Jonah's rebellion a good thing. The ends do not justify the means. Joseph's 11 brothers were wicked to capture him and sell him into slavery. Potiphar's wife was wicked to try to seduce him and then blame him, falsely accuse Joseph when it didn't work, when he refused. Yet through their wickedness, our sovereign God for his own glory worked salvation for his people and for the entire nation of Egypt. In the same way, we see today much wickedness around us. It is tempting to see the ways of the world, the utter dominance of the wickedness of mankind, and think that we must do what the world does, just for better goals, for better ends. As if the holiness of our goals will make the filth that we wallow in somehow less odious to God. As if the only way God's purpose could be accomplished was by these actions that are themselves reprehensible in the Lord's eyes. As if the sovereign God needed us to wallow in filth so that he could keep his hands clean. As if that were the only way God could accomplish his purposes. God will use the wickedness of the wicked to accomplish his good purposes just as God will use the sin of his own people to accomplish his good purposes. That does not mean we should sin more so that grace may increase. That does not mean we should sin more so as to accomplish, we think, God's plan. It certainly doesn't mean that we tell the Lord to sit back and let us handle things from here on out. God calls us to do his work his way. He doesn't just give us a goal and let us go to accomplish it however we see fit. He calls us to a goal, to a purpose, and also to the means to get to that goal. 
We are called to do his work in his way. And then trust him with the outcome. Because a lot of times his way doesn't seem like it'll get us there. Because he is working in ways that we cannot imagine and wouldn't believe even if he told us. Even if he explained in detail what it is that he is doing in the world today, we wouldn't believe it. Because his ways are so far above ours. His thoughts are beyond ours. We should never countenance sin, should never make a place for it, no matter how much good we think might come of it in the end. We should never countenance sin, should never make room for sin just because we think it will result in something good in the long run. Pragmatism destroys itself always. It is still sin. It is still reprehensible before the Lord. And yet, once we've sinned, once we've failed to keep God's commands, once we've fled from him however far, we can rejoice that our God is gracious enough not to destroy us as our sins deserve, not to reject us out of hand, and he is sovereign enough to use even our sin, reprehensible though it is, he uses even our sin to accomplish his good purposes. Even more than that, God calls us again to serve him. As he does here with Jonah. God gives us grace upon grace upon grace. His mercies are new every morning. Therefore, as we rejoice in his mercies, let us pursue holiness, pursue obedience to his commandments which is better by far than the wickedness that we think will accomplish God's purposes. That we think is a shortcut to accomplishing God's ends. Okay, Lord, you've given, this is what you want to have happen. I see a way to get there quicker than you've laid out, so we're going to do this other thing. No. Pursue holiness, pursue obedience, which is better by far than our sinful shortcuts. Pursue obedience and holiness and leave the workings of the world and all the results entirely up to him. He is God and I am not. So God calls Jonah again with the same call as before. Go to Nineveh and call out against it. And this time, Jonah obeys. Look at verse 3, 3 and 4. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And Jonah began to go into the city, verse 4, going a day's journey. So it had, it's been a while since we looked at the, the geographical context here, as we, since we looked at kind of where this is all located. But remember that this is most likely referring not just to the city proper, but to the, we might call it the greater metropolitan area, the city and all of the surrounding hamlets and farming communities and everything else that formed the support structure for the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Obedience to the Lord replaced Jonah's arrogant refusal, <coughs> excuse me, arrogant refusal to countenance mercy on his enemy. At least enough that he went. Grudgingly, perhaps, as we'll see when we get to chapter 4, but he went when God told him to go this time. And when he arrived at the city and its environs, he preached the message that God commanded him. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, if we're being honest, this message leaves us a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? 
There doesn't seem to be any wiggle room. There doesn't seem to be any grace. Doesn't seem to be any room for repentance. Just the bare proclamation that the countdown timer on the end of the world, from a serious perspective anyway, has reached 40 days. That's it. You got a month. It's all over. Make peace with your gods because you're going to be seeing them face to face shortly. For all that this bare statement is deeply uncomfortable for us, we have to recognize a couple of things. First, it's necessary. It is a necessary statement. And second, there's more going on here than we see at first glance. So let's look at the necessity of it. It is necessary. When Holly and I were uh, dating and I was shopping for an engagement ring, I had been given uh, by my grandmother, she'd given me two family diamonds, uh, heirloom diamonds. Uh, so I, what I needed to do at that point was to find or create a setting that would work with those two stones. Of course, eventually I decided on a three-stone setting, if you've seen her ring, a uh, three-stone setting placing a green sapphire between these two diamonds. But then, of course, the next hurdle was to choose the particular sapphire that was going to be situated between the two diamonds. Find the right one. If you've ever shopped for gemstones in, in person, not online, uh, if you've ever shopped for gemstones, you know that the way a jeweler will show you stones is to lay out a black velvet mat under a very bright light and then place the stones in the center. Of course, the darkness of the velvet makes the sparkle of the gem under the light appear all that much brighter. Doesn't actually change the stone at all, but it, we see it more clearly. We see the reality of the sparkle of the stone because of the backdrop of the darkness of the velvet. How it is perceived, how it is viewed is different. And in the same way, for the good news of the gospel to be understood, to be recognized for the brightness that it truly has, then we have to see the bad news first. We have to see the darkness of sin to understand the brightness of the gospel. The depth of the darkness into which the gospel comes must be seen clearly. If we think that our sins are small, that they're mistakes that everyone makes, Maybe a few minor stumblings in a life pretty well lived. I, I've generally got my life together, but, you know, there's just I could use a little help just to get me over, over the top. If that's the way you think of your life, then the gospel will seem just a cherry dropped on the top of a Sunday. Nice, but not necessary. You're mostly okay without it. The gospel at that point will be a minor add-on. Ultimately helpful, perhaps, but without much urgency, without much power. The more clearly we see our sin, the more the wickedness of rebellion against a holy God is revealed in all its hideousness. The more I see that, regardless of what anyone else has done, the more I see my sin, the penalty that I have earned by my sin is destruction and death and hell forever. The more clearly and brightly the gospel will shine. We love proclaiming that Jesus is the answer. 
that Jesus is the solution. He solves our problem. And we're absolutely right to do so. That is, that is good news. But if we're not ma making clear what the problem is, what he is the answer to, then the gospel will at best be just a minor add-on. Nice, maybe. Help me get over the top. Make, I, I took, it, took the ball 99 yards down the field. I just need Jesus to get me that last one yard, and I'm good. Unless we see the depth of our sin. Unless we see the depravity that we wade into full knowing. So Jonah goes into the city and proclaims, in 40 days, God's going to destroy you utterly because the stench of your sin has risen beyond endurance, beyond even his great patience. When we proclaim God's truth to the world, to this nation, we must likewise be clear what the predicament is. The stench of our wickedness is rising to heaven, and only the sheer unearned mercy of a righteous and holy God prevents our complete and our immediate destruction. That's it. That we continue to exist at all is God's mercy to, on us despite generations, despite centuries of idolatry and violence and arrogant pride and greed and lust and Christians who have been at least as bad as the culture, if not worse. But his mercy on this nation and any nation is not infinite. His patience for our idolatry will not be restrained or will not restrain his wrath forever. Maybe tomorrow his righteous anger will break out against us. Maybe today. Maybe it is already broken out. And we're so convinced that we're a Christian nation deserving of God's blessing that we're unwilling or unable to see his wrath for what it is. And so we must proclaim the bad news so that people will understand it lest they think themselves safe. Lest we think ourselves righteous and deserving of God's favor. We who claim Christ are no better with far less excuse. Repent of your wickedness, of your violence, of your idolatry, of your breaking of every commandment the Lord has ever given. Repent, lest he destroy us utterly as our sin deserves. We have to understand the bad news before the good news will make any sense at all. But what about the good news? From what we have here, Jonah doesn't ever seem to really get to the possibility that God might actually relent of the disaster that he's planned. Jonah doesn't ever get to forgiveness or mercy or grace or anything even remotely in that ballpark. Here's where we have to see that there's more going on here. There's more to the story than we see than is recorded here. As we'll see next week, uh, the response to this message of seemingly unrelenting, absolute destruction, the response is immediate repentance, complete repentance from the king all the way down. The entire city, the entire nation even, repents. 
What we have here in verse 4 is a summary of Jonah's message. We have to see that Jonah himself is as much part of the message as the words that he speaks are. His experience of rebellion, his flight from the Lord and subsequent restoration are part and parcel of the message itself. Eight centuries after this, Paul will write to Timothy, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In short, if God can show mercy to Jonah, who had every reason in the world to know and do better than he actually did, who was a prophet but fled from God rather than speak for God, how much more can he show mercy to the Assyrians? If God can save Paul, who literally pursued and persecuted Christians to death, he literally killed Christians with the stated goal of eradicating Christianity completely. If God can save Paul, he can save anyone. If God can save me, a vile hypocrite who has the temerity to stand here and open God's word with you while secretly wanting you to praise me for it, I am literally stealing glory from God every time I stand up here. If God can save even Jonah, even Paul, and even me, then he is able to save anybody. God did not choose you and does not send you into the world to preach his truth because you are all that in a bag of chips. He calls you and he uses you because apart from him, you are a miserable failure and a rotten stench apart from him. And because you are, his grace and his glory will shine all that much more brightly through you. His glory is made perfect in your weakness. Christians, we are called by the one true God, by the Lord who alone is holy and righteous and good to give him glory in everything always. Our pride wants our calling to be because of something valuable in us. Something good in us that the Lord wanted and couldn't get otherwise. So he grabbed us. He needed me. We want to be needed. But that is foolishness. If the Lord is so weak as to need me, then we are all in an awful lot of trouble. The fact that he was at work here long before you got here, that he is at work now through you and despite you, and will be at work here long after you are gone is deeply humbling. God is at work. It is a crushing blow to our pride, but even that blow is grace to us because our pride lies. Your pride tells you that you can stand in the place of God, that you can offer something to God that he needs. Your pride lies. 
The God we worship is the God who literally spoke the world into existence. He is the God who sovereignly governs, as the confession says, all his creatures and all their actions, who numbers the hair on our heads and will not let even a sparrow die apart from his will. This God does not need you or me or anybody. He is wholly self-sufficient. And yet, he delights to use you anyway because of his sheer grace. We are not called to glory in our works or declare our righteous deeds to the world, for indeed we have none. We have nothing to boast in. We are called instead to declare the bad news of our decrepitude and earned judgment before the Lord and to declare the righteous mercy of the cross. That all of our wickedness, rank, awful though it is, was nailed to the cross and destroyed. And if God could do that with my sin, filthy as it is, he can do it with yours too. We are called to declare the hope of the empty tomb to men who are dead in their own arrogance and sin. Dead in their belief that they can fix things themselves. Called to declare the hope of an empty tomb that cannot be earned, only accepted. And then trust God for the results. Because you can't change hearts. But here's the truth. He who began a good work will be faithful to complete it without fail. If you are his, regardless of your failures, regardless of your sin, regardless of how ugly your sin is, he has said, I will never leave you, neither will I forsake you. Christ will not be cheated of what he purchased by his blood. If you are his, you are his, period. But the more clearly we see the bad news, the more clearly we see how much we deserve destruction, the more clearly we will see Christ and his glory. And that is where our hope lies. He who called you is faithful. He will do it. Amen. Let's pray.